0: Our passage this morning is John 5, verses 18 through 30. For context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. So hear the word of the Lord. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son. And shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that, you may be, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me the word of the lord let's go to him in prayer father we give thanks to you for this word and we commit ourselves now to hearing and praying to you with confidence in your own promise that you would open the eyes of our spirits as well as our heart and mind that through this word that you have given us and the spirit who is always with us we might see jesus Bless us that we may bless you in him, we pray, in Christ. Amen. Not long ago on an evening where Carolyn and I were just had time to relax, we watched an old movie released in 2005. And when it was released, it posed some interesting ethical conundrums. Uh, The film was titled The, The Island, starring Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. And McGregor and Johansson, uh, their characters are among thousands of residents living in a 21st century uh, dystopian underground compound. And the residents in this compound um, are well taken care of. In fact, everything that they do is measured out. They are constantly being checked for all of their biological systems. Their diet, which is laid out for them, is according to whatever the computer readings are of their system. They are in a totally controlled environment, so everything is safe, everything promotes health, everything is ideal in one sense. It is a utopian society. But at the same time, everything is bland and everybody is dressed exactly the same, everybody has the same routine, and they live under well-supervised, well-guarded, oppression. The people that are living in this underground compound long for an opportunity to get outside. Now, the reason that they're underground, they're told, is because the earth has had a calamity, and the entire earth is is polluted, with the exception of one small island someplace out in the ocean. And so therefore, they need to remain safe and under the ground, except that every once in a while, There is a lottery that takes place when room on the island is made available, and whoever wins the lottery is able to go, and they are told that they're going to live on the island. And so all of the residents long for that opportunity to go to the island. But McGregor soon learns that his entire life, not only his, but everyone he knows is an entire sham. That he and every resident of that compound are actually just clones. And the sole purpose of their lives is to provide insurance policies for their human counterparts, wealthy people who were willing to invest in cloning themselves so that there would be a living bank of body parts in case they ever were in need. And so when he discovers that this is the, the, the reality for all of them, he recognizes that it's time they need to escape. He found that going to the island was a metaphor for being harvested and the only ones that won the lottery were those whose counterparts had become sick or ill and had need. And so rather than waiting for their number to be called where they would go to the island, they make a daring escape and the rest of the film is an action adventure of them dodging the people that are trying to pursue them while they themselves are trying to pursue the origins from which they came, and literally, to go and find and to meet their their makers. Overall, the film is not that great, but it it does keep your attention if you're ever bored. And it does raise some interesting and important bioethical questions. Primarily among them is human cloning ever appropriate? And if it is ever appropriate, what are the limits of human cloning? No doubt that some good can come medically from cloning, but the question is, at what cost? It becomes a significant problem when human embryos are raised up and cultivated for the sheer purpose of later strip mining them for for body parts. In the text that we have before us, Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders Because not only his actions, but his words have given them the indication that he considers himself to be equal with God. And there is a sense in which they understand very well who Jesus is and what he is saying about himself. And yet there's another sense in which they don't know the half of it. Because the scripture tells us some really amazing things about the person of Jesus Christ. Even as we used in our confession of our faith this morning in Colossians, we are told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in that same letter, the Apostle Paul says, for in Christ, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And so we are told that Jesus Christ is the exact physical representation of the living and true God. Jesus himself would later say that if you have seen the Father, you have seen me. And he wasn't using that in a metaphorical sense. He was saying that if you want to know what God is like, you see God embodied in me. Even at the beginning of this letter, John writes, or in the beginning of this, uh, this gospel, John says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so very clearly, the whole purpose of this letter and Jesus's teaching is to declare to all who would hear that he is equal to the living God and that in fact he is the true and uh, the living God. Now, when we consider the religious leaders, we understand why they are angry. Because there is only one and true living living and true God and to give any praise, worship, adoration, glory, as if another is God, is an issue, is something that is worthy of death. The Old Testament Testament speaks of that very clearly. And yet Jesus is making these tremendous claims. Now, cloning is probably not the best analogy to use when we're talking about the identity of Christ for a, a, a couple of reasons. One of which is, as I looked onto the uh, website of the um, National Human Genome Research Institute. Their definition of cloning is this, cloning describes a number of processes that can be used to produce genetically identical copies of a biological entity. And while Jesus was certainly biological, a living and breathing man, the DNA that he would have had for the physical appearances would have likely would have seemed come from Mary for the simple reason that God is a spirit. He has no body as we have. And if he has no body, there's no cells from which you can harvest any of his characteristics that would then be able to be cultivated into a living, breathing, biological entity. Another reason is for something to be cloned, it assumes that there is a pre-existing person from whom everything is cloned, and that the clone comes later. And yet, even as this gospel begins, it says, in the beginning, whenever the beginning was, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what that is telling us is that for Jesus Christ, there never was a beginning. Whatever the beginning point, whatever we would consider the beginning point, for me, I assume it's when God said, let there be light, but Jesus was already there. He has no beginning, he has no ending, and so therefore cloning is an inadequate analogy. And yet it's the only thing that came to my mind that we grasp that gives us the sense of the exactness of which the scriptures teach that Jesus Christ is of God the Father. Even if we talk about our own children, some of us have children who look a lot like us, and some of us have children who act, unfortunately, a lot too much like us. But there is a shared genetic component. And so they have both physical and personality traits of both of the parents. And while Jesus had physical traits that, again, were likely that of Mary, all the scripture continually focuses on is the character traits, the exactness of God the Father who preexisted, who has no body, and is the perfect expression of holiness. And Jesus speaking to those who wanted to kill him because they said, we have a problem with the fact that you're saying, claiming to be like God, to to be equal to God. In the passage before us, he gives us a, a series of claims which don't seem to be the way that you would well, squash the uh, the concern. Because he literally, as we look through this, we'll see, he's saying to them and to all who believe, you haven't seen anything yet. Now... As we look through these, all of the claims that Jesus makes are worthy of a study of their own, whether a sermon or a book or anything else, and we're just going to touch on them and I'm going to categorize them so that we can both be introduced to what Jesus is saying about himself and also prepare ourselves as we come to this table where Jesus offers himself on our behalf or has offered himself and we remember what he's done for us. But as we look at these claims, we are astounded with what Jesus is saying of the unity and the oneness that he has with the living and true God. The first thing we see is that there is a shared or a mutual intimacy. We see that in verses 19 and 20. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son, and he shows him all that he himself is doing. And in those words, we see, first of all, a love that Jesus clearly has for the Father, and yet that Jesus is declaring the Father has for him. In fact, that love is so great that the Father is totally transparent. God the Father is totally transparent before Jesus, and he shares with him everything, everything that he's doing is what Jesus is claiming. We also see in this passage an interesting thing is that Jesus is getting his identity ...out of the intimacy and the oneness that he has with the Father. How do I, what, why do I say that? Well, if you'll notice in this whole text, Jesus only speaks in the third person. His only identity that he refers to himself is as the Son. And God is only as the Father. He doesn't speak at, even use the word I until we get into verse 30 and he's really kind of shifting gears. But this whole discourse is intended to point that Jesus has, is so united with God the Father that he can't conceive of himself as separate from him. They are that much in union with one another. And in that union, in that relationship, God the Father reveals everything. There's nothing that Jesus doesn't know about the Father. And the only way that that can happen is through an incredible intimacy, and in this case, an incredible intimacy that screams of the oneness, the unity that the Son has with the Father. To such an extent that Jesus declares, I can't do anything that I don't see my Father doing. And I only do what the Father does. That oneness shapes Jesus' identity and his actions. Now, somebody might look at that and hear that statement, I can't do anything unless my Father tells me or shows me or does that. That sounds kind of like rather than an equality in a relationship, that sounds a lot more like a a subordination. Because I'm only doing what I'm told to do. I'm only doing what the example is given to me. And there is a sense in which Jesus is indicating that at the same time. But one of the beauties and the mysteries of all of the scripture is that Jesus Christ, who is fully God, who is one with the Father at the same time voluntarily makes himself subordinate. Theologians refer to this as the difference between the ontological trinity and the economical trinity. And what that means is what Jesus is demonstrating here shows the distinction between both who he is and how he functions. He voluntarily takes a seat underneath the authority of the Father, even though he himself is equal with the Father. We see Paul recording that in in the book of Philippians in the beautiful song where it's declared, although being very nature God... He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, to be held on to, but making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to death, death on the cross. But it's for that reason every praise and honor and glory is given to Jesus Christ. It's a demonstration of the equality, but they take a back seat. By his very nature, Jesus is one. But for your sake and for my sake, Jesus was willing to take the second seat. That in no way negates his oneness. Even though it may seem in this case, and later Jesus makes a statement that the Father is greater than I. I think about it this way for those of you who are maybe basketball fans is, as I understand the, the coach at the university, basketball coach at the University of Virginia, his father who was a, uh, was a renowned uh, and respected coach, at times his assistant to his son. So who's greater? The son is the head coach, the father is the assistant, so clearly the son is greater in that sense, except that the father is the father and the son is the son, so the father is greater. They both have their positions in which they volunteer. Well, in one case volunteer, one was biological, but that's... They have their roles, and yet it doesn't negate either. of. Neither of them is a better physical specimen or example of a man. They're both equally human and are equally in that. Jesus is declaring in this both his equality and yet his willing subordination to the father which is a demonstration of his love and that love comes is born out of the unity that he has with his father and that love is expressed through not only are they is there's intimacy but second we see that they have a shared work And we see that in verses 19 through 21 continue because What Jesus is saying here is really quite amazing. The son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The Father loves the son and he shows him all that he himself is doing. Now, we read that and we need to think about it this way. It is one thing for somebody to say, I can't do this without you. I need your help. No, those are incredibly affirming and unifying words. It recognizes a need and the assistance and the participation and it continues and it's a way of of building intimacy. And as important of a statement as it is that I can't do this without you, I need your help, it's an entirely different thing for somebody to say, Every move you make, I will make that move, and if you don't move, I will not make that move. Exactly what you do, I will do, and what you don't do, I will not do. And that's what Jesus is saying here, is that he is so in sync, he is so one with the Father, that he is going beyond just saying, I help the Father, or I need the Father's help. He's saying, I will not do anything the Father is not doing. And everything the Father wants to do, I am doing. And that is an amazing, amazing statement and attitude, especially when you contrast that to the mindset of many of us, particularly American evangelicals, who rather than spending our time before God saying, God, what are you doing and how would you have me involved with what you were doing, we tell God what we're doing and then ask him to bless it. No matter how noble the intent is, it is an entirely different attitude than what Jesus Christ describes in the shared work that he has with the Father. And then he makes an absolutely amazing statement here. And greater works than these will the Father show us so that you will marvel. In other words, you people are impressed that I just healed a guy and you're upset because it's on the Sabbath. You haven't seen anything yet. Because I know what the Father is doing, and I am at work with what the Father is doing, and because of that, there is power in what He's doing. If we want to see any tremendous work in transformation in our church, in our community, and ultimately in our culture, it may be time that we quit asking God to become our servants and we just seek the face of God and His heart. We also see, even in that work, there is a shared sovereignty. We see this in verses 20 through 22. For the father loves the son, and he shows the son all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these, as in the healing and, um, that He has shown and, and what they're already aware of. In verse uh, 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And so while Jesus is at work with the Father, doing exactly what the Father does, we see here two spheres in which God alone has the right and the authority to be at work. And Jesus says, and God has given them both to me. The ability to give life and the responsibility and the ability of the judgment. And Jesus is declaring, just as the Father raises people from the dead, and that's kind of a hint of what is yet to come, look, you're upset that I got a guy who couldn't walk and got him up? Wait till I start raising dead people. Even more, wait till I rise from the dead. Because it's not just that God says that I can make this claim, but God the Father has endowed Jesus with life himself, and in him is life, and he has the right to give life to whoever he so desires. And at the same time, We're told that God the Father doesn't judge anyone, that Jesus is the judge. Now, somebody might say, well, I thought they did everything together. They do. While God is in himself, justice, and therefore is the administration of justice, the execution of justice, comes in the person of Jesus Christ. They are working together in this. And really what he's talking about here with these two examples is an elaboration of something John already shared with us that most people who have ever read the Bible are quite familiar with. This is just simply kind of putting an outline to what Jesus was teaching in John chapter 3. See, in John 3.16, which most people are familiar with, whether they consider the context or not, we love the verse because it talks about the promise that is given to us in Christ. For God so loved the world that he uh, sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. We love and we should because it is an awesome promise and an awesome picture of the nature of our God. But if we go a little bit past there, we hear the mechanics of, how, of what that means. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and that the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And essentially what John is revealing here, and Jesus then is teaching to the Pharisees and to all of us who would listen, is the nature for all of us is we stand condemned already because of our rebellion. And we live in darkness. But because God loved the world that he created and the people that were made after his own image, rather than eradicating them all and starting all over to save a people, he sent his own son who voluntarily came to us, becoming like us, and through him to judge as well as to save. But his judgment was not for the purpose of condemnation. It was for the purpose of redemption. And yet Jesus Christ is the standard by which we are judged, because this is what he's saying. Those who believe, they will have life those who do not believe they stand condemned already and it speaks to our natural state so jesus didn't come and condemn we're already condemned jesus came and provided the means through which we might have life and yet the actual judgment for is going to be this those who believed loved the light and those who reject well you had the opportunity because the light has come to you but you demonstrated by your rejection that you preferred the darkness and now that's what you get they are self-condemned already and jesus is saying in this passage showing how he is sovereign over our salvation of giving of life and death and one of the beautiful pictures that we have in this particular passage is found in verse 24 in the passage in john five twenty-four, and it says this truly truly i say to you Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, if you underline your Bibles, I would encourage you to underline those words, has passed. Because Jesus is speaking about to people in the present tense, about a, in the past tense. Because the fact that you have believed, by God's grace, the promise is you've already passed from the death that is judgment into life. It is already yours. The light has come into the world to give life because he so chose. And yet those are characteristics that belong to God and to God alone that God has given to Jesus, Jesus is claiming and Jesus is delivering. And then he tells us the reason why, which is the final thing I want to highlight this morning. So we already see that there is an incredible intimacy and unity and that's expressed through the work and the work is of bringing people to God to give them life. And then we see not only does Jesus have the authority and the sovereignty, but he is the recipient of shared glory. We see this in this passage, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You see what Jesus is saying? See, so we know that God, who is God, is worthy of all worship and honor and praise and obedience. Jesus is saying the reason that God sent him, and Jesus God has endowed him, the Son, with this unity, is for the purpose that we might give everything that belongs to God, to Jesus Christ as well. And this is absolutely amazing because God is very clear throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, 8, for example, the Lord declares this I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with another or my praise to any idols. It's an expression of God's soul worthiness to experience and to receive worship. And that not only is it demeaning of him if we give it to anything else, but it's not good for us either. And so God, both in his grace and in his holiness says, nobody else, nobody shares in what is rightly mine. And yet Jesus is saying the whole purpose of his coming is so that we give to him exactly what we are giving to the Father. And then he goes on. and says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, he's saying, you cannot honor God the Father unless you honor Jesus Christ the Son in the same way that you would honor God. This is an absolutely incredible claim that Jesus is clearly saying, I am God, I am worthy of the praise. In fact, if you want to praise God, you have to worship me as well. And Jesus, therefore, is telling us the way that we most honor the living and true God is by living lives that are Christ-centered. But even the idea of being Christ-centered is sometimes misunderstood. Because there are many who take Jesus' teaching and take them seriously as they should. But they miss the point, purpose for which Christ has come. And they think that The way that we are to live life is to follow the teaching and when we mess up, double back and make sure we do a better job of following them. But it misses the whole point that by missing it at all, is sin and is worthy of death. So I really appreciate an observation by the Bible teacher and scholar, Dale Bruner, who says this, a Christocentricity, meaning Christ-centered life, that is not somehow, at the same time, a crucio-christocentricity, meaning a crossed of Christ-centered life, is still off centered See, the primary purpose that Jesus came was to not only teach us and instruct us and that we would see what God is like, all of those are true, but he came to take our place, to be a sacrifice on our behalf, that through him we might be set free. And having been set free then the instructions that he have are the way of life and of joy and of honoring God. But apart from recognizing the purpose for which he came, we cannot honor God because we are denying his primary purpose. And so as Jesus is speaking these things, I can't help but go back into kind of pretend like I'm watching these religious leaders. Remember, they're upset with him because He'd healed somebody and he says, it's okay if I do this on the Sabbath because, you know, God's my father and God would think this is okay. And so they're angry that he was a Sabbath breaker and that he was claiming some relationship with God. And Jesus' response to kind of help them to understand better is, not only am I related to God, I am God. And the Pharisee's response is understandable and in one sense right because only God deserves to make these kinds of claims. And these claims demand a response. The Pharisees were not totally wrong. C.S. Lewis famously in Mere Christianity brings the same statement. And he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying a really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. Lewis says that that argument makes no sense. He said that the the idea of just accepting Jesus as a teacher, but not as God, is the one thing that we must never say. And here's his rationale. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher... He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg. Or he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human being. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so when we consider these claims of Jesus Christ, which are just the tip of the iceberg of what he reveals about himself, it demands a response. Either his claims are blasphemous and worthy of death, or they are true worthy of worship. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us that demands us to ask ourselves, do we believe what Jesus says about himself or will we reject? But Either way, you have confronted us with these claims. I pray that you would grant us the grace to discern the truth and even to believe that He is God come in the flesh, our Emmanuel. And in believing that all of the promises that He declares and that you throughout your word would be ours, that we would have life, that we would have life in its fullness, which means a life that lives in relationship with you, with all of the assurances of your love and promises to provide and even the awareness of your work that began in us to enable us to believe and will continue until we ourselves reflect your holiness, becoming like Christ. Lord, be it work within us, but even today, may you shore up our foundation, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. To him be all glory, praise, and honor.